Hi guys, welcome to the Texas Garden Guy Show. I am Destin Nowak, the Texas Garden Guy, and today I have an awesome guest. He's been a mentor and a wealth of knowledge to me since I met him, uh, and his name is Jay White. Hey, Destin. Well, how are you? Uh, doing I don't great. know if I'm a mentor. A mentor typically means old, so I guess uh, I qualify for that. Uh, <laughs> I tell people, you're the OG of internet gardening, and I'm the OP. I'm the old person. So, but but anyway, but thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today, even though you and I do chat quite a bit. We, we probably talk more than, we probably talk about the same amount as me and my dad talk. You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a little bit about Jay is, uh, Jay is an Air Force vet like me, and he also uh, owns, and are you the editor of Texas Gardener Magazine? Yeah, I'm everything, Destin. I mean, we have a bunch of editors, so how it works in the, in the publishing world uh, the guy that wears the big hat is typically called the publisher. So I'm I'm the publisher, but I'm the owner. I do editing. I do proofreading. I do ad sales. When you have a small business, you pretty much do it all. So, but I will tell you. I mean, if if we want to talk about the magazine real quick, I'm currently yeah. working on the November twenty November December issue for 2023, and when that issue comes out, we're pretty excited because that is the first issue of our 43rd volume, which in the publishing world means we've been in business 42 full years. We're starting our 43rd year of publishing. Wow. And I think that's awesome. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's been a hard time for publishers since the internet came out, but um, some magazines still hold on and still do great. And I think the reason Texas Gardener holds on and does great is because, you know, Texas Gardeners are very, very passionate about what they do. And, um, and so we feel fairly lucky that, that we're in a, in a market, we're in a niche market where we have people that really do still want to hear from, you know, real, professional, high-quality, good gardeners. Right. Well, and, and so you'll be in the 43rd year, but you haven't always owned the magazine. We give people, tell, kind of tell people the story, like your background and how you came into owning Texas Gardener Magazine. Well, it was a... It was a curvy road, Destin. So, it always is. Literally, when I grew up, I wanted to be an ag teacher. And so when I went to college, I went to Tarleton State. I got a degree and a Bachelor of Science in Agronomy, and I was going to be an ag teacher. And then the first oil collapse happened in 1980, 1981. And I probably could have gotten a job as an ag teacher. By that time, I had already gotten married, and I had a baby on the way. And um, ag teachers at that time made a whopping $9,600 a year. Oh and God. so I realized that I could make more if I went into industry. But after the oil collapse, there weren't very many jobs. So, like you mentioned, I went in the Air Force, where I made a whopping $15,000 a year when I started hey, out. That, but it, inflation, you know, inflation makes a difference. Inflation, right. you know, it didn't sound like much now, you know. Yeah, but. so... So I, I did, you know, a little over 10 years in, in the Air Force, and um, the Air Force taught me some pretty good computer skills. And so even though I loved agriculture, when I left the Air Force, I, I went in and, and used the computer skills that they had taught me. And so for the next 30 years, roughly, I, I did a bunch of IT consulting, and then I wound up at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where I actually retired three years ago. Um, 
But along that path, my wife and I moved to Brenham, and she, you know, she encouraged me. She said, you know, Jay, really, you always wanted to go to A&M. You should have gone your first time. And she said, um, you always, you know, wanted to be an ag. So she said, why don't you see if they've got a master's program over there that they will accept you in? And so I drove over to A&M. Um, I was a fan of, of my mentor. His name's Dr. William C. Welch, everybody, Bill Welch, everybody calls him WCW. And he's really one of the leading, he was one of the leading landscape architects for the southern states, the southern United States, um, which I really admired. Great writer, I mean, just a true southern gentleman. And he said, come on over, you know, as long as you can pass the GMAT, we will take you in the horticulture program. And so I got accepted to the master's program at A&M in horticulture. Um, and my, my true um, graduate advisor there, you know, he's like the guy that guides your career once you're in graduate school. His name is Charlie Hall, and he is still the leading economist of the green industry in the United States. So I got to A&M, I met lots and lots of amazing people like Charlie Hall, Dr. Welch, Mike Arnold, Jayla Fry, you know, people that have wound up supporting me in the magazine, writing for the magazine, you know, master gardeners, all that. So it was really, really a, a great fit. And so I wound up getting my master's over there when I was 52 years old. And, um, and so anyway, um, I came out, I didn't know what I was going to do, but while I was at A&M, I'd been introduced to the owner of Texas Gardener Magazine. I started writing for him. And so I had a blog at that time. It was called the Masters of Horticulture. You can still find it out there if you go and search for it. Um, so between the Masters of Horticulture, which I ran for eight years, and Texas Gardener Magazine, which I wrote for eight years, that's what, I guess, put me in the position that when the gentleman who started the magazine, his name was Chris Corby, when he was turning 70, he called me up one day and he said, look, I'm turning 70. I've been doing this for 37 years. I don't want to run this magazine in my 70s. If you and your wife will buy it, I will make you a heck of a deal. And so Sally and I were, I don't know if you want to say silly enough to say yes, smart enough to say yes, I don't know what, but we bought the magazine and the rest of uh, history for us. Let's use the word adventurous. Y'all were adventurous we enough. We were willing hey, to take a chance. But before we go, I want to go back. So you, you what was your, what was your uh, degree in from Tarleton? Agronomy. Agronomy. Okay. Yeah. And so crop and soil so, science. So I, I guess um, you know, people who join the military and and stuff don't understand. It's like because you were an officer in the Air Force. Well, that's another story that I left out. But Okay. So I went in enlisted. And so for three and a half years I was enlisted. I applied to the Air Force's officer training program and the colonel that reviewed my package called me and he said, son. You have a Mickey Mouse degree from a Mickey Mouse University. You will never be an officer in the United States Air Force. <laughs> and I said, thank you. Thank you for your honest assessment of where I'm at. And so then I spent time figuring out how to become an officer because, as you know, because you're an enlisted guy in the Air Force, you know, as an E3 and an E4, we really brought home about $15,000 a year, $20,000 yeah. a year. It was not big money. Right. But if I became a second lieutenant, I was going to bring home $36,000 a year. That was just an ungodly amount of money in oh, my yeah. mind. Oh, yeah. And so 
I got accepted to an ROTC program at Baylor University, and but I had to go back to Baylor and I had to do a two-year, get a two-year degree, and I got that in information systems management, um, and I was oh. in the reserves, so I carried the rank of staff sergeant. I got paid a little bit and, and all, and so I was able to go to Baylor. I had a wife and two kids, and so I got that the requirements for that degree done in two years, and then I went in the Air Force, and I was an officer for about eight years. So I, I left as a captain. Wow. Wow. I've so. seen the pictures. I, maybe I'll throw in a picture of what – you look at sweet little Jay now, and then you look at a picture of him like in I, – I, was it the Gulf? Were you, was it the Gulf yeah, War at that time? I, I was in I was in Riyadh when that picture you have was taken. And it's like big old swole Jay – clean shaven head and it was like man that dude looks hard he looks tough you know well, cause... i was not hard it was a good picture destin <laughs> i was an air force intelligence officer we we had a saying that we wanted to be crypto rangers underground and out of danger and so we were um we were not war fighters we were we were you know snooping on saddam hussein and all when i was over there so, so you were actually you were in Riyadh, but y'all were were remote, kind of from a like well, kind of so like, like I was. So I'm not really sure how much I'm allowed to say, but I I was assigned to a unit that did airborne intelligence gathering, and so we were with stationed the a, with the AWACS. Well, so we were on an airplane called the Rivet Joint. So it's a KC-135 airframe, but it's a flying antenna. Yeah. And so it literally can pick up everything in the electronic magnet uh, in the electromagnetic spectrum. It has so, a big dish on top, right? No. So that's the AWACS. So right. but we always traveled with the AWACS. So anywhere the AWACS is stationed, the rivet joint will be stationed. And the reason is is both of them are are unarmed aircraft. And so if one of them goes down over the war zone, the AWACS's mission is to control the airspace. That's why that big radar is up there. It's tracking all of the radar in a 100-mile radius of it. Okay. And if it goes down and you have airborne operations, then something needs to take over. And so the rivet joint can provide a backup um, control of the airspace and, until they can get either ground-based radar systems or another AWACS up in the air. Wow. So, but they so, do, so they you, do you were actually in the air then. You were actually flying around. So my squadron that I was in charge of, and one of the reasons that we went to Saudi Arabia is it was one of, our, there were only two assignments in the Air Force when I was there where a captain could get what was called sea orders, and that's be a commander. And so right. you could go over here and you could command a, a small squadron, um, now, I didn't actually get to command this one. You would only get to command this one if the commander was away on a TDY or, or whatever. But it was one of those promotion things. That's why I went over there. And, you know, for the adventure. I mean, that, let's oh, face yeah. it. That's why you went to, like, Kyrgyzstan or somewhere. I mean, yeah. it was um, – so, you know, it's it's partly because we have to, but it, it is an adventure. We generally say, hey, I'd like to go oh, yeah. over there. Oh, yeah. So – but anyway, that's why I, I went, and my squadron, we had the airborne component, we had a linguist component, 
and then we had a ground base station. So everything that the radio, this is, you have to remember, this was when satellites were first coming on and everything. And so everything that was collected on that aircraft was stored on certain types of digital media. And so when that aircraft would come down, people would have to go out, download the digital media, yeah. and then go and, and upload it to the systems that we use then to store them, sort them, analyze them, things like that. Absolutely. Have 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 you, um, well, I mean, you and me would probably be a good reference for someone like, you know, who's looking to join. You know, I, uh, I joined the military when I was 19 and it, it wasn't because, you know, like it wasn't like any patriotic thing. It's just, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't right. know what I, I didn't know what I wanted. I couldn't hack it in college. I didn't have, you know, any ideas of going to like a technical school or anything like that. Um, and I just needed, uh, I needed someone to tell me what to do. I needed a pathway. I needed someone to lay down the foundation, make me a man, you know, and teach me what it, what it is to be a man. And the military really did that for me. Um, but you were already, you know, kind of in your mid twenties with a kid and a wife when you joined. Yeah, I, That's... Was, I was, by the time I got on active duty, I was 24. I actually enlisted when I was 23 and I had a wife and a kid. And then shortly after that, another kid on the way. Wow. And, um, so, but I agree with you. And my dad was air force. I come from a big air force family. So my dad okay. was air force. My wife, her dad was air force. He was an air force pilot that was actually killed on active duty. Oh, and wow. Then, her stepfather that actually raised her. I mean, her dad was killed when her mom was eight months pregnant with Sally. She never, never met her real dad. And so the man wow. that raised her was a World War II vet from the Navy. <clears throat> so we have a big, you know, military tradition in our family. And so I always felt that kind of pull because my dad had, you know, always told me this is a great thing for all those reasons you talked about. Um, but like you, I had dreams, you know, I was going to go to college, man. I was going to make big money. I was going to come out, you know, the, the military was not calling my name until I right. graduated with a, a Mickey Mouse degree from a Mickey Mouse university when the oil, oil stuff crashed. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy how funny life is because when you're a teenager, you make all these plans and, you know, it just has a way of working. I, I feel like opportunities and your choices kind of come to you when you need them the most, you know, like, you know, you, you make the right decisions sometimes when they, you know, present themselves to you. And that was mine. You know, it was the air force, you know, my dad, I had been skipping college and my dad drove me to the recruiting center up in Lake Jackson. He goes, all right, here's the bank right here. You're either going to go get your own student loans or you're going to go over here and you're going to join the Air Force or the Navy. You're not going to the Army. You're not going to the Marines. You can do the Air Force or the Navy. And I was like, okay, well, I don't really like the ocean. Um, so I guess I'm going to join the Air Force, you know. And and so my job in the Air Force was, uh, they call it POL. But I was a fuels apprentice, a fuels technician. And every time I would tell people, and this was probably even more that way when you were in, as anytime you told someone you were in the Air Force, they're like, oh, what plane do you fly? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like being from Texas, Destin. I had a bunch of cousins in Indiana and um, Kentucky, and every time I went up there, they wanted to know if I rode a horse to school and if we owned an oil well. So, oh so God. when you're in the Air Force, everybody thinks you're a pilot. Yeah, as if it was that easy. You know, it's. I think it's something like 
2% of all people that join the military <clears throat> join the Air Force. It's the small, like one of the smaller branches. And I think it's like 0.1% of all those people become pilots. Because yeah. people, people don't understand there's like size requirements. There's a vision requires so many some you can't be so tall, you can't be too short, you can't be too wide. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, you know, you can't be a pilot. And on top of that, airplanes are complex organisms, and so it takes a huge amount of support for every one of those airplanes. It probably takes a hundred to five hundred airmen and and um to support it, you know, to put the fuel in it, to work on the avionics, to change the tires, to load up the munitions, to check yeah. the avionics, you know. I mean, it's it takes a lot to keep an airplane flying. Yeah. Well, and you were talking about AWACS. Um, uh, the AWACS, I, I was, my main station was uh, Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage. And that, I believe they had a memorial up above the, the, the flight, the, uh, the flight line. Uh, I think the largest AWACS accident actually happened at Elmendorf. There was a, a, a bird strike as they were taking oh. off, and it killed like everybody on board. I think there was a memorial up on the hill. Um, people don't realize that. You know, when when I was, uh, it's a crazy story. When I was in, uh, I did my tech school at Shepherd up in Wichita Falls, and every time you walked around, you'd see dead birds everywhere. And I was like, what is going on with this? And it was like, you know, there, you, you couldn't go like a quarter mile without seeing a dead bird. Well, come to find out birds take down aircraft. And yeah. so there's people that they, they contract on base to actually eradicate birds away from the Air Force base. They don't want them anywhere near, you know. Right. And every time you ask, like, yeah, you didn't see any dead birds. You didn't see any dead birds. You know, they, <laughs> they don't want anything going on like that. Um, and, then, and then the fact that that guy told you that your degree didn't apply. You know, well, I, I, I had an agronomy degree, Destin. There's there's not a lot of need for crop and soil science in the Air Force. Well, see, I, I didn't think it mattered. I thought as long as you had a four-year degree, you were, I mean, maybe it's more like that now. Well, I can tell you, and that all depends on the time, okay? I guarantee yeah. if I'd have tried to sign up during a war when they were needing people, my yeah. agronomy degree from Charlton would have been just fine. Yeah. But when I was in, the computer boom was kind of happening. People wanted to go in the military to get computer skills and all. So they had all the people they needed, and so they, they could be more choosy. Right. And, and that's okay. I mean, I accepted that, and I found a different way to meet oh, my yeah. goal. Yeah. I mean, everybody uh, everybody has a skill that is applicable. You know, if you have any common sense, I highly recommend. If you don't have a pathway in life, you're 18, 19, come out of college, you know, Air Force is such a great option for any kid who's looking to make a little money, have a little adventure, and uh, just don't get married so quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I can tell you, my kids, and this is this is a true story. You can ask my kids this. Every night when I would put them to bed, I sang them the Air Force song. I wanted them to go in the military so bad. Sally Off and I go into, into the, the wild, wild blue blue yonder. So anyhow, I wanted we Sally and I had five kids, and we wanted one of them, just one of them, to go in the military. It didn't matter, but we had a zero percent success rate with that. I mean, none of our kids were interested in the military, and um, and that's okay. They've all done great, but I am a big fan of what you said. If you don't know what you want to do. 
you may not be an airman, uh, you know, a soldier, a, a seaman, or a marine when, when you go in, but when you get in, you'll become one. And they will, yeah. you know, and like I say, you're not pushing fuels right now. And right. I'm not, and I'm not pushing computers right now, but the things that you learn, you know, and you learn how to deal with diverse people. That's a huge thing because oh, I, yeah. I was in the Air Force with people not only from all across the United States, but everywhere the Intelligence Command is, is a joint base. So I also worked with, you know, military from, from different nations and all. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a huge skill is to learn how oh, yeah. to work with a diverse group of people. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 you know, I came from a small podunk town in Texas, 1200 people. And, you know, I, I it just, I, I had no exposure to anything. You know, yeah. the first, the first time I saw snow, first time I got in an airplane was to fly from, you know, Houston to Anchorage, Alaska, you know, oh, and wow. then it, that was the first time I, I ever saw snow and wasn't a fan, you know, <laughs> reason no. why I came back. <laughs> I'm 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 like you. I'm from a small place in Texas, and I had seen snow. I can't say that I hadn't seen snow, but what I'd never seen is my first duty station was Tacoma, Washington, McCord Air Force Base. Yeah. And on July 4th, we went up on Mount Rainier for a picnic, and there was still snow on the ground, and there were like eight-foot drifts where they had cleared the roads and everything. And that just blew this Texas boy's mind. I was like, oh, oh yeah. my God, it's July 4th at home. It's 114 degrees, you know? Oh, my God. Um, so. It's such a culture shock. It's such yep. a culture shock. Um, but it's you good. Know. It's good yes. to see how people live and all over Absolutely. the country, So Yeah. I'm, I was in, I was, so I volunteered for my deployment uh, because I was in the middle of winter in Alaska. And I was thinking, Hey, ain't nowhere going to be worse than where I'm at right now. So yeah. the, uh, a, th a, th a six month, you know, situation came up for Manas, Kyrgyzstan. And I was like, oh, it's the middle of the desert. It's probably going to be warm. I got off the plane or I got on the plane. It was like negative 10 in Anchorage. I landed in Kyrgyzstan and it was negative 25. <laughs> it was, you know, just is like right after Christmas. It had to be January. You know, and I was like, this is worse than where I was at, you know, and but, you know, you get used to it. You, you really you, you can really become acclimated to your environment, especially when you have like camaraderie and people that are going through the same things you're going through. And you built that brotherhood and you build that, you know, second family um, that kind of helps you get through because they're going through the same thing, too. You know, oh, yeah. You know, probably even worse because they got wives and kids. You know, I was a single guy at the time, you know, and when you're deployed, it's, you know, it's probably, it's a lot different for air force people because, you know, I don't know what it was like for you, but it was like having a 12 hour job. You know, it was like, I oh, worked yeah. for 12 hours, you know, you know, I, I don't claim to be like a combat veteran or anything like that. I know what those guys are doing. You know, they more, I, you know, I, I'm, I support you and I'm proud of you. Uh, but for me, like deployment was, go to work for 12 hours, put fuel on jets and then go eat, go work out, go to sleep and then go back and do it again. You know, that, yep. that was, you know, and it's such a, uh, having that structure and adjusting back to regular life is so strange. You know, if like, you know, having like, Hey, all I need to do is eat, sleep, shower and go to work. That is such a, a mind blowing, like, and then it's come so home crazy. At five o'clock. Yeah. Well, I worked nights. I worked yeah. nights for six months straight and it was wild. Um, but anyway, so 
So y'all, so you bought the magazine. Y'all bought the Lots magazine. Lots of Air Force talk, but yeah, we bought the magazine. Um, I was two years away from retirement at, at MD Anderson when we bought the magazine. So I give big, you know, shout out to my wife Sally, who, you know, she really shouldered a lot of the, the burden the first couple of years, and um, and then COVID hit, and so. Even though I wasn't retired, you know, at that time, I was still working from home. And so I was able yeah. to start, you know, taking some of the burden off of her. But um, but she really, you know, she's the one that allowed the dream to happen and carry on because oh, yeah. uh, she she stood up and and learned a whole lot and did a whole lot that maybe wasn't her dream as much as mine. I've met Sally and, you know, I, she strikes me as someone If she didn't want to do it. She wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel like if Sally didn't want to do what she, what she was doing, she just would say, no, I'm not doing it. So, well, and I, she, she's there now. So, yeah. <laughs> so now, you know, we've, we've had to hire, hire people and all, but she still plays a huge role. Make, make no mistake. Oh, yeah. She still makes, plays a, a huge role, but. Um, oh, I, I, I've got her. I, I know who's really in charge. She likes those grandbabies. So, oh yeah. She well, will it, say, it help, no. <laughs> I'm not going helps, with you to that place. I'm going to see the grandbabies. It helps that your your kids are grown. You know, it, I, could, yes. I couldn't imagine you doing it if your kids were young. Yeah, I mean, so we come from a, you know a, a different background in the fact that I did a lot of consulting, and so I've always traveled a whole lot my life. So my kids grew up you know, knowing that I was not always there. And so, um, but you're right. It would have made it much harder. It is very good to have a nice, stable home base and, and all. So, and, yep. and no kids. When the grandkids come, I will promise you, it gets harder to run <laughs> Texas Gardener. So. Oh, I, I've called you whenever you're around the grandkids. I'm like, okay, uh, call me back later. <laughs> Just... yep. So, yep. So, so, um, when y'all bought the magazine, was it, you know, you already had a subscriber base, you know, pretty much y'all, y'all kind of just kind of had a, like bought a turnkey business, you know, it was already running. So y'all were kind of just hand, he handed it off and then y'all kind of took some of his processes, adapted them to make them work for y'all, but you still had that base, but you had to build more. You had to expand and grow that base. Yeah. And is that so that's exactly right. And so and and in a way, it's probably a good thing that I was still working full time um, and Sally was able to do it because what that meant is that we could not jump in there and try to make a bunch of changes right at the beginning. Right. We had to fall back on what he had been doing that had worked well for him. And so we took it slow. We started to make changes. You know, I mean, I, I just think that when somebody owns something for a long time, um, they're not as passionate about it as they were in the beginning. And so the magazine needed some work. It needed to be updated, look more like the 21st century than, you know, the 1990s and, and all. But I didn't jump in and change everything right away. So it gave me time to get out and meet a bunch of our readers, find out what they liked. Um, because of my stuff at A&M, one thing that was a huge help to me is I'm, I'm a big fan of the Master Gardener program. So if your listeners are Master Gardeners, you know, hats off to you. If that's something you think you would like to do, I highly encourage it. This is a great, great organization. And when I was at A&M, 
I worked right side by side with Jayla Fry, who is the, the, I don't know what you call her, program chair of the Texas Master Gardener program, the whole state. And so one of the first things that we did was we started featuring an article in every issue about some of the great things that master gardeners do across the state because it's an all-volunteer organization and they really do cool things. I mean, they do a lot of educational things with young people, which is great. You know, we want to get people interested in horticulture and the outdoors and nature and all. We, get, we want to hook them when they're young. And, the and a lot gardener, of volunteer work as well. Yeah. A lot, I mean, of, a lot of volunteer work. Yeah, they maintain, um, like here in Brenham, they put in a school garden at the elementary school to stimulate the senses, you know, so they had a little garden for smell and sight cool. and sound. And so they do great things like that. But then you also have some uh, master gardener groups in the hill country that are doing like water conservation projects, you know, and they're actually going in and working with landscapes and landscapers and, and doing things to capture runoff. And so it's a great, great organization. And, and by agreeing to feature them and, each issue of our first two years, I got to meet a bunch of gardeners all across the state who liked the magazine, you know, who had subscribed to the magazine. And I got to just see, you know, how wide. I don't think when people talk about gardening, I think typically people just think about growing fruits and vegetables or flowers. Right. But, you know, the whole topic of gardening, it's truly, it's huge. And, oh, yeah. and I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot here, Destin. Yeah. What's our tagline at the magazine? Plant happiness. Plant happiness, y'all. And I, yeah. I mean, when I was in, in doing my master's program, Charlie Hall told us, he, I went to one of his lectures. He's really a brilliant man. And it was a lecture to the nurseries across the state. So they all came together. He was given a talk. And he said, if you people think you are selling trees and shrubs and flowers and vegetables, you are missing a huge opportunity. He said, what you are selling is you are selling health. You're, se you're selling physical health, mental health, well-being, joy, happiness. And he said, if you are not you know, promoting that, you are missing 50% of the sales that you could get. Yep. And that stuck with me. And that really has become the tagline of our magazine is plant happiness. Because the field of horticulture is huge. There is so much out there, and every bit of it, as far as I know, I have not found any part of horticulture that does not bring somebody that's doing it joy or happiness. Right. I mean, we really are in a happiness self, self-help self field. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I don't think I ever talk to anybody about gardening or landscaping that doesn't talk about the therapeutic aspect of you know, gardening and how it makes them happy. You know, I work 10 hour days and come home and spend an hour or two in the garden almost every single night. You know, it's a way to decompress and, you know, de-stress. And, uh, you know, uh, someone was even telling me that uh, getting dirt under your fingernails is like they were doing a scientific study that it did something to like release endorphins or something. It can also give you pink eye. I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll. <laughs> you're a pink eye, but, yeah. but I did, I, I read something very similar to that just this week. And so, and, and, you know, and that's all great, but, you know, I also tell people, I think there's some, you know, misunderstandings out there. You and I are from the South. We, we grew up with people that hunt and fish and all of that. 
And a lot of people, you know, they get, get down on hunters or, or anglers or you're killing fish, you're killing deer or whatever. But I'm going to tell you the most environmentally sensitive people that I know are hunters and fishermen. I was going to say, na- I was going to say native plant people. Well, and native plants, you know, but that's but that's a, that's kind of the same thing. But the I'm point is, if these people are in nature, they care about nature. They understand that that right. nature provides them, you know, their hobby, the things that they enjoy. And so, just being outside, my point is, you can get dirt under your fingernails, and that's evidently a benefit. Sunshine's a benefit, and all. But just going out there and watching the life cycle of finding. You know, oh, yeah. the other day I found a cottontail nest in one of my giant pots that I have and watching those little bitty babies grow and all of that, that's an added benefit of being outside in the nature. You know, it's not just yeah. growing, it's it's being in nature is a it's like a blessing. You know, you if you take time to notice it, nature is pretty stinking cool. <laughs> well, especially for people who like live in subdivisions like I do, where you know, at your house you're on some acreage where and you can kind of look around and not see another neighbor. You know, I literally see, I can literally see my neighbor watching TV on his back porch <laughs> from inside my house. Yeah, uh, but you so, know what else you can see? I remember from one of your posts, you can see a possum. So you've got neighbor, you've got, you've got nature in your backyard. And believe true. it or not, that possum's pretty cool if, if you can observe her for a while. <laughs> I love possums. I I love possums. Uh, that possum. I think I named. Uh, I think I named it, named her him or her Billy. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm a big fig tree guy, so I got a ton of figs. And come to find out, possums really like figs, uh, even the rotten ones. You know, they love them. Um, and I don't have a problem with any animal coming and getting some fruit. Uh, the problem I had was my dog likes to fight them. Uh, you know, he, he reached up and grabbed one off the top of the fence one time and they were wrestling. So m- my concern with trying to get you know, re relocate that possum was that I just didn't want it to get hurt. Like I felt bad. I think possums right. are great. Uh, they eat a lot of ticks. They, they're, they usually can handle snakes. Um, they do a lot of good stuff. You know, did you know that the average life lifespan of a possum is about a year? Now, I didn't know that. I would, I would have thought it was longer, but that's uh... What is the number one thing you see get hit by cars? Yeah, possums. Yeah, and armadillos. And armadillos. Well, it's just I saw hit by a car today. This was very, it was very sad and very cool because I know we don't have very many out here, but we saw a baby fox that had gotten run over on our on our road. Gray fox. It was a it was a gray one, huh? It was a gray fox, and um, you know we've seen them on the game cameras before, but we just don't see them that much. You know, Sally and I had chickens for years, and I think we caught one on a game camera one time. And wow. if we've only got one that comes to a chicken coop, that means there's just not that many of them around. So it was very sad to see that, but it was also oh, yeah. very interesting to know there's still a, a fox population that's somehow making yeah. it out here. Oh, for sure. I, um, I think back in like April when it rained a ton, uh, you know, we're down here towards the Gulf and we have more gators. I saw right. someone hit, somebody hit a five foot gator Ooh. one day. I, yeah, I was, that would do damage. And that would do a lot. Well, so I was that day. So I drive along a lot of like farm roads coming home. I take the back roads home. Um, that's another kind of de-stress like thing I like to do. Uh, but anyway, I counted eight alligators in the ditches and stuff that day, and then including that one that got hit by a truck or something. And I was like, "Man, that sucks. That yeah. sucks." Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's 
it's definitely a good way to see nature. You know, I got those uh, leaf cutter bees that came in and I haven't done a follow up video because I had an incident. Did you see that video that I posted of the, the leaf cutter bees? Yes. Uh, so I put them in there and these bees are, they're North American, you know, native bees, but they come from Canada. And so when they're people are selling the bees, I don't think they took into account the Gulf Coast with the stuff we have down here. So within like a day, I had fire ants getting into the cocoons. And uh, I, I, I messaged them. They're like, oh, put cinnamon in there to keep the ants out. Well, I did that and the ants were gone. And I came out like two days later and they were hatching. But I had like five or six lizards hanging out around the bee, the bee house. And as soon as a bee would fly out, they would grab it. They'll grab it. Like it was insane. I couldn't believe it. it. Like it was, it was crazy, you know, but nature, that's, it is nature. It's, is it's, fascinating. it's nature. Um, so I know one thing about you is every gardener has their thing. They have their, you know, I'm into figs, Jorge's into like oak trees. Um, I, you know, everybody's got their thing. So I know what your thing is, and maybe you want to elaborate to people why you're into poppy well, so much. Okay, well I love I love poppy. So I've got I've got two or three things. You know, I don't have I don't think I have anything like you're into figs. So I love poppies. Make no mistake, I do love poppies. And part of my love for poppies goes back to a military story. Um, I mean, I knew poppies. You know, we have poppies around here, um, but when poppies really made a difference, I got to be in England. I was in London on what they call Remembrance Day. We call Veterans Day, so November 11th. And at England, I tell people they do up Veterans Day right because they truly understand the cost of war. So the United States, since World War I, has lost around 900,000 people in war. So almost a million people have been lost, since, I want to say since World War I. I. I think I'm getting the stat right. The English lost over more than one million people in World War I. Okay? Wow. And so that's why I think the English and the French, they, they understand, you know, the true cost of war. And so at Westminster Abbey, they have little graves set up all around the grounds of Westminster Abbey and they have little picket fences around them, and at the head of the grave, they will have a white cross. It's probably, you know, I don't know, let's say it's 24 inches, 30 inches tall, and that wide. And in the middle of it, it will have a unit crest for the units that have fought in defense of the United Kingdom. Well, they had the 8th Air Force, and, and they would put a poppy on in that grave, and each poppy, I want to say, represented 500 dead for the crown you know, for support of the crown. So some of these graves, you know, would have like the third Scottish, you know, dragon ears, blah, 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 and they'd have three or four poppies in it. The 8th Air Force, which is still the unit in the Air Force that has the highest casualty rate ever, and it was all fought in, in the Battle of Britain or de defending Britain from Germany, the grave that they had, which was probably three foot wide by, you know, 18 inches wide, they had to have three graves to support oh, all wow. of the war dead. So by far, the unit that suffered the highest casualties, the most number of casualties, even over British units, 
is the Eighth Air Force and in support of of you know the Allies in World War II. Wow. And so when you would ride the train or what they call they called it the tube. When you rode the tube, you know from where I was staying down to Westminster Abbey and Parliament and all that, everybody in the country would be wearing silk poppies on their um, lapel. And it was because of a Colonel McRae, who was a Canadian um, lieutenant colonel. He was a doctor, and he saw the carnage of um, one of the World War II battles. I think it was the Ypres. And he saw the battle, and then he came back a few months later when it was covered with graves and wild poppies had popped up. So it's a beautiful, um, beautiful poem called In Flanders Field. So that got me kind of fired up about poppies. And then when I found out, you know, that we could grow them, I kind of went nuts. <laughs> and so I grow, I grow tons of poppies. Just like you have too many figs, Destin, I have probably too many poppies. And How, so... And well, I they're, have, they're, they're easy to plant, right? They're easy. You just take the seeds super before, up, super. before winter, right? Yeah. So after the poppy blooms... Uh, they don't last very long, a day or two or three, and then the leaves will fall off, and then the little round pod in the center will begin to dry out. And this is one of those nature, you know, cool things. The little poppy pod is a cylinder. It's round, and then on top it has a little crown. And as that pod dries out, holes open up between that spherical pod and that crown on the top, and it literally gets a ring of holes around it, and you can take it and shake it out in your hand or into a sack to collect the seeds. But what nature designed that for is when the wind blows or something brushes against it, every time that plant goes back and forth, it's spewing poppy seeds. Wow. You know? And so super easy. So I always collect mine. The poppies bloom early in the spring, typically in April, some into May. And so I always collect them, save them up, and then I always put them out September and October. And so... Do, do you have to? I mean, would they just reseed themselves? They will. They will most certainly reseed themselves. But what will happen with any plant that reseeds itself is you'll never get a, a you know smooth, uniform coverage Patches. in the area that you want. So if you had your poppies right here... Because of the wind, next year you're going to have more poppies over here than you're going to have where the original poppy plant was. Right. And so that's why I like to collect the seeds, but you are 100% correct. There's a yard in LaGrange that I go by every year. Sally and I go through LaGrange a lot, and it's completely covered with poppies. The entire yard in the spring is nothing but poppies. And oh, I wow. stopped and talked to them, and I said, how much trouble is this? And they're like, what do you mean trouble? We don't do anything. <laughs> we don't do anything. These, yeah. We, we just don't mow until June. And we're like, okay. So, wow. So, yeah, it will. They will reseed. And, and how many, how many uh, varieties do you grow? So, I know that I have, I know I have probably five distinct varieties, Okay. Most of them are what they call bread seed poppies, um, and, and so these are the ones that people typically think of that are on your bagel and, and things like that. I have a couple of doubles that I really like, and, and I guess I have three different doubles, and they actually look more like a carnation than they look like a poppy. Okay. Um, and so I have um, a pink one, an incredible red one, 
And then I have a maroon one that one of our writers, um, here's a shameless Texas Gardener plug, but one of our writers is Greg Grant. And Greg Grant is one of the most famous plant breeders, plant discoverers. He'll bring things, you know, he'll discover things and bring them to market, like Tacoma Sands or Yellow Bell's Esperanza. That's a, a Greg Grant creation. Oh, and really? So when Greg was at A&M, when he was an undergraduate, he got to take part in the program that created the Maroon Blue Bonnet. And so he's got some early fame and recognition for that. Those Aggies got to have everything maroon. I know. They're, it's a sickness. But, <laughs> but anyway, but he took the breeding skills that he learned on that, and he developed a lovely deep maroon double poppy, which, okay. which I also have. And so, but I've got red poppies, I've got orange poppies, um, but typically they're all um, red seed poppies. Yeah, because I, I was wondering if you have them all close together, will they hybridize? Would you start getting hybrids? So there's, there's generally thought of there's like five species of poppy. And so the only ones that will hybridize are is, is if they're in the same species. Okay. So all, all poppies are genuses. I think I'm going to say this right, papervir. That my Latin is not what it should be. But then you have bread poppies, you have opium poppies, you have California poppies, you have Icelandic poppies, you have Asiatic poppies. And so they will not cross-pollinate if they're not in the same species. Okay. So, and so, no, I was so gonna ask, interestingly so... enough, how Greg got that deep maroon poppy, Yeah, as all plants... Greg will tell people, you know, he is a plant breeder, but he's also a plant selector. And so he found a lovely red double poppy, probably one very similar to the one that I have, but every plant will have variation. You know, so you can you can get one poppy that will put out these dark red poppies, but one or two will have some kind of genetic sport in there that'll make it be just a little bit deeper. A and natural so, occurring mutation. Natural occurring mutation, and so Greg would find these, separate those out, and then continue to cross those until he breeding, developed yeah. you know, the color that he wanted. And so there's yeah. a lot of what, you know, plant breeding is not just taking the pollen from this anther and rubbing it on the stigma. It can be like what he did, which was a whole lot of selection. Yeah, selective breeding is definitely, I mean, that's why we have mini horses, you know? Stuff like oh, yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, it's not just plants. I mean, it works for everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, do do you have any poppy, any like opium poppies? Or can you legally no. grow? Can you legally so, grow opium poppies? So technically, I've researched this. It is technically illegal to sell opium poppies in the United States. Okay. With that being, because opium is what? What do they call it? Like a class one narcotic or or yeah. whatever. And if you grow them, it's not very hard to extract extract the sap that they use right. to refine into opium, codeine, morphine, all of that stuff. Heroin, yeah. So it is, yeah, it is technically illegal to grow poppies, possess their seeds, or whatever. What that said, they don't do a very good job enforcing it because if you go to eBay or you know Google up. Um, seeds for opium poppies they're all over the inter internet yeah but i try i don't you know texas gardener people like texas gardener because i think we're a positive um oh yeah 
we're we're a positive magazine. Anybody in the family can read us or whatever. And I just don't have need to grow opium poppies. Oh so, no, no, I was I was just curious if if it was legal even to grow them. You know, yeah, I technically I think the answer is no, <laughs> but people do. Yeah, um, so. and I, and and I, I've I've I haven't been to your place yet. I need to make the trip up there because I want to go to. Uh, see the McLaughlin's and see the Antique Rose Emporium. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, so you showed me your water cistern set up. You know, you're up in the hill country where it's super dry. You want to talk to people about uh, your, your water collection system? Well, I will say this. People in the hill country would argue that Brenham's in the hill country. So I, I think it we is. Are, we are west of Houston for sure. And it, it is hilly and all. And we have a, a different climate than Houston. But regardless of the climate, Sally and I are pretty passionate about um, water collection. You know, I, I mean, right now, there's a part of Texas where it hadn't rained in two years. And this is around San Antonio, Hayes County or whatever. My son range, yeah. And he's in stage four watering restrictions. It is literally illegal for him to water outside right now. He will get fined. He's on a municipal water system. And so, you know, I did a post on it, and it was very popular, but a lot of people were like, oh, that's crazy, you should be able to water food and all of that, and I have a well, they couldn't tell me not to water. Well, if you have a well, people can't tell you not to water, but if you're right. on a municipal water system, they yeah. can monitor your water flow and fine you if you use more than they tell you you can. Right. And so Sally and I just, we think that with all these people that are moving to Texas, that water is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Um, I mean, there is a hundred and something thousand people that move to Texas every month. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And there's only been one new reservoir built in the last 30 years in Texas. So anyway, we really want to encourage people to do water collection. It is so easy. All you got to do is set up something that holds water, route a gutter into it, and then you've got your own water supply, which is actually yeah. better for your plants because it's not Absolutely. chlorinated. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything in it and, and try to use that. And so we currently have three, we have 2000 gallon cisterns and a 500 gallon cistern that we got from Texas metal tanks and, and they're stainless steel. So they'll never rust. They'll last much longer than the galvanized. And we've got another thousand gallon coming. Um, because as you know, I mean, this is just a brutal year. And so um, that water probably will not get us, you know, through a summer. In fact, I know for a fact it won't get us through a summer. But it will make it to where we have to use at least 3,500 gallons less. And if we get a little rain, maybe 7,000 gallons less in our at our house. And y'all are on a well, right? No, no, no. Where we're at, we're actually on... I wouldn't call it city water. You know, we're out in the country, and so there's a water system. It's, it's a mud funny. district. Yeah, that, but it's actually owned by a company out of Dripping Springs, which is hardcore in the hard in the hill country outside of Austin. Yeah, yeah. So no, it's it's definitely a cool option, even if you're just going to use that water for water in your yard or the grass. Uh, I've seen people where they retrofit their swimming pools. Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll they'll take their swimming pools, drain them out, and they'll run a uh, collection from their gutter and then repurpose that pump to uh, route to their sprinklers and stuff. I've seen that. Yeah, and depending on, you know, probably one of the reasons I'm water conscious 
is I was friends with an old man who's now passed, and he's really the guy that got me interested in gardening or whatever. And I didn't know it. This was, you know, back in the 80s. He was a homesteader, but nobody knew what a homesteader was back then. And he lived on the top of a hill in a two-story house, and he had a big cistern that he collected all the water off of his roof, but he also replumbed his house so that all the gray water in his house went into that cistern. And then since he was on the top of the hill, he kept his garden down at the bottom of the hill, and he would just use gravity flow to, yeah. um, to water that garden. And what was so, to me, ingenious about his, you know, mine, if it stops raining here and we run out of water, we're out of water, okay? But since he routed the gray water from his house into that, he would always have a little bit of water in that cistern. You yeah. know, I mean, he didn't put his toilets in it, but I'm talking about he would put his sinks and his shower yeah. water would pump into that cistern. Well, I've even seen people you can use a certain kind of laundry detergent and your laundry water can even be used. To use, yeah. So I know, I haven't heard about that in a long time, but I know that several, many years ago, I remember hearing about there was so much phosphorus in laundry detergents yeah. That when it would, the gray water would get in these septics or in these sewer systems in the city that would really increase root growth and everything. Oh and so God. a lot of, a lot of the sewer lines and everything would get clogged with tree roots and things like that because the water that was running through them was full of fertilizer, you know? And so I've heard that that's why many years ago they started making phosphorus-free or, or phosphorus-reduced um, laundry detergents. Yeah, you can get, like, clean, like, uh, uh, what is it called? Like, na uh, nature-friendly uh, laundry detergent. I've even seen videos where people make their own. Right. And it's kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, I've seen where they've actually ran it out to a cistern and the gray water from the... It's just a... A different kind of detergent, you know. Uh, right. But if it had phosphorus in it, it might even be better. You know, it's like a liquid fertilizer. Well, it depends. <laughs> One problem with Texas soils, though, most Texas soils wind up being a little phosphorus doesn't deplete as as quickly as nitrogen, so it tends to build up. So even though it is something plants need, we generally have plenty in our soil. Right. So, well, and 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 that's something funny that I. I um, I forget who we were talking to about fertilizer, you know, um, you know, a lot of people when they go get fertilizer, don't realize that, that they see, you know, it, oh, this is for crepe myrtles or this is for roses or whatever, um, that their soil might already have, uh, like a lot of people don't do soil samples. A lot of people don't know what's actually in the soil. So they may be giving their plant more than it actually needs, you know, cause it's already high in something in the soil. Like I've never done a soil sample. I've never done it. I mean, I, I, do, do you do those every once in a while? So I tell people, yes. And so I tell people, if you, um, if you want to get a soil sample, you definitely do it. You can go to A&M, Google up Texas A&M, soil sample lab. Um, you'll order a kit. They'll send you a little form to fill out, a paper bag, tell you how to take the sample. You send it in. It's $12. If you'll send me $6 right now, I will tell you what that soil sample result is probably going to tell you. And so I heard Sally that, laughing in the background. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a, that's like every AgriLife extension guy. They, you know, they push soil tests and all, but you should get your soil test. You should get your soil tested regularly because like you say, if 
people realize that plants do need the different minerals and elements that are in fertilizer, but what they don't realize is that they overdo it, that sometimes having a toxicity of something is worse than having a deficiency. Right. And so if you have a deficiency, you can always quickly bring that up um, by adding some fertilizer. But if you have a toxicity, sometimes it can literally take years for the microbes in the soil to break it down, the water running through it to move it out or whatever. Right. And so if you continually put out too much fertilizer, you will eventually develop some kind of a toxicity Right. And, so, and that, and there, there definitely is, there's definitely a difference between like someone like me who's mostly in containers and raised beds right. and someone who's using fertilizer in ground too, because it's right. not, it's, you know, I, I always tell people that I fertilize more often because I'm in containers and because I'm in the raised beds, because that stuff is getting flushing out a little faster because it's the gravity is wanting to take it down. But obviously in the ground, you probably don't have to, you know, you know, fertilize half as much as I do. So here's here's the rule. Here's kind of some cool rules that I like people to think of when they do fertilizer. So there's a saying in, in what we call the green industry about fertilizer grows green stuff, water grows white stuff. Okay. So primarily what you're doing when you're going to grow in Texas, most Texas soils are going to be deficient in nitrogen. And the reason they're going to be deficient in nitrogen is because we have high heat and so high heat will make nitrogen leach into the air. And then when we water or when we get the big rain events in the spring and in the, in the fall, um, that will leach the, either it'll wash the nitrogen down through the soil or it'll wash it out to your gutters and, and down the road. And so the biggest thing that people, you know, talk to me about fertilizing are their lawns. And so if you're going to fertilize your lawn, your lawn is all green stuff. Your lawn is not going to seed. It is not going to fruit. Your lawn is nothing but white stuff, which is roots, and then green stuff, which is leaves. That's all a lawn is. And because of that, if you want to keep a healthy lawn, then you want to use any fertilizer product. We call them turf-type fertilizer products. So you can buy things that are called 1300, okay? That's ammonium nitrate, I believe, or sulfate. But anyway, that's a pure nitrogen. And that is going to quickly green that grass up, okay, as long as you put it out, water it in, and all of that. Not this time gonna... of year. Not I'm this sorry? time of year. Not this oh, yeah. time of year. No. No, no not, not this time, time of year. <laughs> no. Yeah, so this is really a lot of people, you know, especially in, in neighborhoods where they have HOAs and they want to compete for the prettiest lawn, they tend to overwater and over fertilize. So, my lawns, when I do fertilize, I don't even fertilize every year. But if I do fertilize every year, it'll be a definitely in the spring. And then in end of September, I might give it a, another little hit of fertilizer just to let it kind of grow and, and bulk up going into the winter. But you really need to be careful in the, in the fall when you start putting out a lot of this nitrogen. If you put out high nitrogen by itself and you push... Because the nitrogen's not just going to push the grass into growth. It's going to push weeds. the shrubs that are around the grass. It's going to push the weeds. It's going to push your trees. And so if you get a lot of nitrogen and the trees go and put on a new, a lot of new growth, new leaves and everything, 
and then we get an early freeze like we sometimes do in, in late December, early January, it can actually damage, it can cause yeah. bad damage to your trees. Yeah. And so, so you need to be careful with your fall fertilizations. Do it early, do it, you know, middle of September, end of September. And the other thing I tell people when you're watering or fertilizing your grass, go and ask for a product that's in slow release form, where at least yeah. half of it's in slow release form. And a lot of organics, people, you know, I don't know if people really understand the science of organics, but almost all organics are in a slow release form. So they're going to slowly break down as the microbes and the insects and all of that in the soil break them down and digest them and, and feed the soil microbes. So most organic products are a slow release, okay? So but if you want a commercial type fertilizer, then you can go and ask them and they will have it in all kinds of different forms where it will actually give a nice big green up. So like Color Star. You know, you yeah. and I both you and I both represent Nelson Fertilizer and they have a product called Color Star. And it has a product called Nitrolene, which is semi organic, but it's a fast, quick greening. But then they're also going to have some dry and some pelleted nitrogen products in there. And when you put that in your flower bed, you're going to get a, a quick green. It's going to, and then the other pellets that are in there are going to slowly break down, slowly release the other, you know, macronutrients, micronutrients, and nitrogen that it needs. And that's why that's a, that's a nice product to have a, a nice, um, get a, an early hit and then get a slow release too to continually feed. Because here, you know, I really, really love uh, Nelson Fertilizers. They're gonna love this podcast, Destin. Destin. <laughs> but here, here's why I love ColorStar. Osmocote advertises with my magazine too, and Osmocote's a great slow release fertilizer for pots and beds and things like that. But Osmocote has a time and a moisture sensitivity of when those pellets open. So Osmocote fertilizer will not open and release its fertilizer until its moisture content is met and the temperature is above 70 degrees. Not nitrolene in, in the Color Star, it is instantly available. So when okay. we want to plant, you know, our pansies and our violas and our ornamental cabbage and kale and everything in the spring, when we want to get that out in late um, or late February. Um, start putting it in our pots and all that. Well, we can go to something like a color star and it's going to instantly start feeding. Whereas right. Osmocote's a fine product and it's a fine slow release product, but it's not going to start releasing its goodies until it gets 70 degrees. Well, and this would probably be a good question for me to ask you because you're now I love Microlife and I love Nelson's. Yeah, right. I love them both. Um, right. Microlife on their, on their bag it says slow release. Right. But the pellets, like, so if I, if I were to take, it's probably just a terminology thing. So if I were to take a cup of water and put mm -hmm. my color star and take a cup of water and put microlife humates plus the humates plus is going to dissolve. Right. Like, pretty quick. The color star is going to leach out slowly in that water. So when I think of slow release, I think of something breaking apart. So like a, like a pelleted, like a coated pellet. So is there like a time release, the time release and a slow release? Um, no. What is, what is the terminology there? So it is terminology. 
and I and and this is good and and you know it this is where people like simple answers and this one's not a simple answer but why all I love Microlife make no mistake they're a big I can, I can, cut, I can cut this out if I need to <laughs> I, I got the Microlife tattoo right here you know I, I love Microlife just like I love Nelson yep so all organics when people think of a fertilizer so when you're talking about you know you put that that Nelson's in there and you look in there and you can see all of these colors and everything and in your mind you say well some of that's going to be calcium some of that's going to be manganese some of it's going to be nitrogen some it's going to be phosphorus and all and that's what your mind says and in a way that is true on on a on a commercial fertilizer that is that is very much true organics don't work the same way so when you put a commercial fertilizer out when you go and feed your coastal Okay, it doesn't matter if you're feeding petunias or coastal or whatever, and you're using anhydrous ammonia or any of these other commercial products that we spread over coastal or our vegetable or our flower beds or whatever. They are man-made formulations that are designed to activate when they get wet. So you get them in. That's why they always, you always want either a rain or... Um, irrigation after you put out a dry commercial fertilizer. That's, that's right. just the way it works. Organics, when you put an organic out, so organics will, if you put them in a cup of water, like you said, and you went and pulled the water out after you got it to dissolve, your fertilizer formulations are going to be very small. So your NPK might be something like 1.5-0.5-3 or something like that. So there are going to be very small amounts of fertilizer in the water that comes when you dissolve an organic. Where organics pick everything up, where their, their benefit multiplies, is when they get in the soil, since they are made out of natural organic materials, they begin to break down and put organic matter into the soil. Well, all of the microbes that are in the soil then feed on that organic matter. And as they feed, they reproduce. And as they reproduce, they urinate, they defecate, they die, and their bodies break down and release all of the amino acids, the proteins, all of the things that are inside their body, inside their urine, their feces, and all of those things come out in a chemical formulation that is 100% pure and ready for the plants to absorb as it is. And so when you say that you put out an organic fertilizer and somebody says it's very hard to overdo organics, that's why. Because when you put it out, if it comes in rains, even if you put out too much, you know, Microlife Ultimate or whatever, it's still not going to burn your plants because right. it's not going to release that high concentration of nitrogen, which is what burns. Right. And then you almost cannot um, overdo organic matter in your soil. Right. So, like, when they talk about if you want to do improve your... Um, your, your lawn right now. So there's a problem right now with what are called hot spots. So if you've got a sprinkler system and there's parts of the sprinkler system that aren't covering the whole Region. yard evenly, you'll get brown spots. Yep. So I went and visited with my friend Beverly Welch at Arbor Gate and her suggestion for that 
is to go and use a pitchfork or some kind of aerator in those hot spots, open it up. She sells her own products, you know, and, and they're great products. If, if you're in, you know, that Tomball area of Houston, go see Beverly. She's got great products. But you're going to put some kind of organic material into those holes that you open up with your pitchfork or your little aerator thing that you let me borrow yeah. that I'll never borrow again. And, um, and so then you go back, you get that organic material in there, and then you go in and water. And she recommends watering with a soil activator, which is just an oil, an organic product that's going to have some living organics in it and everything. And what that's going to do is once you get that organic material into your soil, if it's a clay soil, it's going to allow that water that's in that clay soil to become more readily available to the plant roots. And if you have a sandy soil, it's going to build that and allow it to retain water. And so that's yeah. why that's that's the difference between organic fertilizers and commercial fertilizers. Commercial right. fertilizers give everything they've got pretty much at application unless they're in some kind of slow release form. Organic fertilizers, they give it slowly and steadily. So as long as you're putting organic fertilizers out until all of that organic matter that, that was contained in them dissipates, they're going to continue to give you something for a long time. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. So, that definitely makes sense. Well, Jay, we are over an hour and nine minutes into this. I told you I would only take an hour from you. I know you're a busy man. Um, I guess uh, I know you're going to be at the meetup on September 30th over here at Jorge's. People can oh, come yeah. and meet you. Uh, you'll definitely have a table uh, set up with some freebies, give away some uh, magazine samples. Uh, tell people about the prices and if you've got any deals going on right now. You also so, have the online version as well, which yeah, I really so like the online I do too. And and the online, if you get the online, you get almost 10 years of history. So that's the good thing about the online. We have a sale going on right now on the website, texasgardener.com. You can just go to the products. You can find the digitals um, sale. I think it's $14.95 right now. It's normally $19.95. If you like print, one-year prints, $24.95. And if you want print and the digital, we let you have it for just 9 bucks if you add it on to your your print subscription so it's every other month it's every other month every, every other month yeah so the january february issue is always the tomato issue that is our best-selling issue of the year this year we printed sixteen thousand copies of them and we sold like sixteen thousand and fifty so we had to go to the store and literally print copies on a copy machine because we sold out of the tomato issue and it has a plant planting guide spring planting guide and then the july august issue is the water issue which talks about water conservation and it has a fall planting guide in it i've actually so. i've actually got an example people can see right here my wife had this made for my birthday this is, that is my, true. the issue There's... that i was in I, I was i wasn't on the cover which i was a little upset about but no, i'm just kidding <laughs> we, we very seldom put people on the cover unless they're related to me destiny maybe one day well i'm already married jay come on you know yep. just... <laughs> i'm talking my grandbabies have made the cover but that's been it oh uh, well maybe i'll uh maybe me and jorge will figure something out or we can do something where me and jorge can be on the cover there um, we go and yeah, you also, so you forgot, I think October 7th, you and I are both going to be at Wabash, too. That's true. 
I've gotten to a point where I, I it's hard for me to keep up with all of the dates. And so October 7th, we're also going to be a Wild Bash feed. Uh, yep. Text uh, me about that later because I totally forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah. well, anyway, um, they'll yeah. have two great opportunities to see you and I together. They can come to Jorge's at the meetup or yes. they can come see us at Wabash. Well, and I think we're even going to try to do a live episode of the Grow Bros podcast and have you on with Brandon and Jorge and bring you on the you Grow Brian? Bros podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna get a clip of that right there <laughs> but yeah jay will be there on september 30th with us um and it's gonna be a really good time are you gonna be at the montgomery county uh the fall outdoor living festival no no i had to think for a minute but i i'm not Okay. Yeah. But I'll, I know I'll be... that our editor Skip Richter is going to be there with you. My is that good correct? old buddies. So he's there on Saturday, and I'm there on Sunday. We actually, I don't. Is he going to be doing the show live from the the convention? I'm not. Typically, when he does those, he typically does Garden Line. Like, say, here's another shameless plug for the magazine. Skip Richter, host of Garden Line on KTRA. Good friend. Good friend, Skip. He has been the editor of our magazine for 25 years. And so we're very excited for Skip's success and to have him on Garden Line. But typically, when he does those events, he does his show from 6 to 10. And then at 10.01, he hops in his car and then, you know, tears okay. out to wherever he's he's got a, a presentation. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they had the ability to actually sh uh, shoot it remotely. I didn't know if they had the ability to do that or not. I was curious. They do, but Skip, and you know, there's always a, a quality issue when, you know, yeah. when you're not in a professional studio. And Correct. so Skip really does prefer to be in the studio when he records Garden Line. No, and I'm I'm gonna try my best to get Skip on the Texas Garden Guy show as well. Uh, oh, yeah. You were actually you were actually on Garden Line what two weeks ago? Yeah, a couple of weeks, three weeks. I, and I'm like you, Destin. It all runs together after a while. Dude, but it I was cannot the summer, keep track. And it was <laughs> it was super fun. Yeah, no, it's so. always a good it's always a good time with Skip. It's always it's a always a great time with Jay. You know, I I always tell. I, uh, I always tell people, they're like, what is Skip like? And I was like, well, have you met Jay? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, they're like two peas in a pod, but one's a little crazier than the other. You know? <laughs> I don't know. Skip can loosen up too. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. I, appreciate, I, I appreciate you coming on, Jay, and giving me uh, giving me your time. And uh, I'm going to stop recording. Don't hang up. <laughs> don't right. hang up. Thanks, Dad.